And I wanted to say, first things first, this is a series for Christians. This series is for Christians, especially today in particular, and for those who want to understand Christians and their relationship to homosexuality. So in other words, everyone's welcome to listen and welcome to hear and welcome to receive and everyone's respected and and welcomed to be here. But the biblical view is what we're going for. So right off the basis, we're going to be talking about a lot of things, but the first thing we'll do is say, what does the Bible teach about this issue? And, um, the subtitle of the series, it's homosexuality and then speaking the truth in love. There are some who do one or the other. They either speak the truth and they wield it like a spiked club, not necessarily partnering with the idea of love. And so truth comes out with bitter and sometimes angry statements where there's even truth, but there's carnality in there and overreactions to things. And so I've actually heard phrases like just, in fact, I heard this from a a pastor. It was carried on the news a little while ago, maybe a year or two ago, put all the gay people on an Island and let them die out. And I thought, you know, there was a time when the disciples of Jesus said to him, from a group of, about a group of Sumerians that had rejected Jesus. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did, which is not exactly what Elijah did, but, but there they go. Yes. Shall we call thunder and lightning down upon them? And Jesus says to them, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And there is, to start off, there is um, a reality that I'm not here to support Americanism. I love America, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to support biblical Christianity. And biblical Christianity is a gospel of love. And though we speak the truth about issues, we love people. This series is not about hate. I love gay people, and I actually mean that. I'm not just saying that as a talking point. I do love gay people. I don't have a problem with meeting gay people or spending time with them or enjoying their their company even. And that's not the issue. Um, it is love for them which compels me to do this series. And I hope to do it in a way that will not unnecessarily offend anybody. Though I cannot be certain no one will ever be offended by what I say, I certainly don't want to have them unnecessarily offended. Truth is offensive enough on its own without me adding my own carnality to it. And so um, I want to do that. Uh, you, everyone who's hearing this, whether you are gay, straight, an adulterer, a porn addict, whether you are a, a drug user or dealer, whether you are a liar or a cheater or a thief, God loves you. He loves you. It doesn't make our sin okay, but he loves us while we were yet sinners. And so I want to start with that understanding and also to realize though, that some people have a goal of love, realizing the gospel is a gospel of love and a message of love. And in, in, in endorsing love, they actually cause, it causes them to embrace not only sinners, but to embrace sin. And that's the other balance. We want to speak the truth in love. I want to have love, not just truth and truth, not just love, because those who speak truth, but don't partner it with love they make a mistake and are, are, are mean-spirited and, and actually misrepresent God's heart. Then there are those who speak love and don't partner it with truth, and they are also offensive and misrepresent God's heart and God's truth on the issue. There is a difference between tolerating behavior and approving of behavior, legitimizing it. In fact, 
some people in our culture have bought the lie that thinking homosexual acts are sinful means that you hate gay people. This is strange when you really just, just think about it. If I think that, for instance, heroin use is sinful, does that mean I hate heroin addicts? Certainly not. If I think that um, somebody dishonoring their parents is sinning, does that mean I hate all of our high school students at the church? <laughs> who have all at some point in time done this. And myself, for that matter, and you. <laughs> no, certainly not. That, that doesn't make sense. By definition, this is a tolerance thing. We, we tolerate things that we don't agree with. In fact, that's what tolerance means. It means to, to, to uh, endure something that you simply don't agree with. In other words, if you agree that homosexuality is okay, you're not tolerating it, you're endorsing it. It is only those who disagree with it that even have the ability to tolerate it. That's what tolerance is. It's, I think you're wrong. I'm not going to, you know, come at you with a knife over this issue, because that would be murder. In case you didn't know. So by definition, we only tolerate what we disagree with. If a parent sees a son using drugs and says, I think your drug use is bad and you should stop, they're not hating their child, they are loving them. So often those who take a view that homosexual acts are sinful are called intolerant and are in response the ones who are hated. The irony is that's intolerant. <laughs> that's the irony of that. Um, love should not mean approving of what everyone does. I don't have to approve of everything you do in order to love you. Everyone who has children knows this inherently. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, speaking of a description of love, says this, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And so a genuine love will also be honest about sin, what is right and what is wrong. So my goal in, in, in this series is to speak the truth in love. That's the goal. Speak the truth in love. And hopefully everyone feels welcomed here. This is what's needed. This is what Jesus did. And, and you hear he uses very harsh words, but he's always driven by love. Even when he rebukes and calls somebody a hypocrite or calls, he calls, he actually has some name calling. He does. And uh, maybe the Jesus of, of um, modern Facebook posts isn't always the Jesus of the Bible. Um, but Jesus always acted in love. He didn't just take, it's not like he just, I'm taking the gloves off. Ain't no love for you. Bruh. But rather those harsh rebukes were the best thing for those people because it was what they needed to try to wake them up to the issues they were dealing with that they might be saved. It was like an intervention. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And it's what we ought to do as well in the way we deal with this issue. So if it is actually wrong, as, as I believe the Bible teaches, and I'll make a careful case for it, if it's wrong for homosexual behavior of any kind to happen, if that's a sin, then the most loving thing I could do is try to rescue my friends and family from committing this sin, lest they harm themselves, the people they do it with, and their relationship with God. The same way I do all the time as a pastor when I see a student beginning to stray and I say, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? And I try to pull them out of that. That's the desire. So we are dealing with here a battle of ideas. This is, this is really, um, this is not about um, our view of gay people. Uh, our view of gay people should be the same as our view of every, every other person in the world, but it's really about the biblical view of the act of homosexuality. And we have to separate the person from the behavior because there are, there is actually a difference biblically on these two topics. And so we are dealing with here, um, that homosexuals are not the enemy. <laughs> Rather, there are those who God wants to save from this particular sin after I make my case for it, which I'll do today. 
right now. So the biblical view, that's what we're going for. And what I want to do in this series, here's a little overview. In fact, those of you who got the flyer, did anybody get the flyer that we sent out? The flyer says something about these topics. We're going to, over the four weeks, try to understand the new pro-gay theology, which has recently become the fuel of modern the modern gay reformers movement, which is actually, there is these gay reformation meetings where they'll gather together and um, try to enable and equip people, not just to think that homosexuality is, is a good thing, that God approves of it, but to then go out into churches and go out into social media and try to convert others into the same belief. They call themselves a reformation because they want to have a change of the church as big as Martin Luther's reformation in the 1500s. So this is, this is, um, uh, this is actually a sort of a response to that. I'm not initiating here. I'm reacting and responding to these things and enabling you to hopefully be prepared as you hear these different arguments. We're going to understand how the pro-gay movement is wrong about the Bible, and we're going to be able to help others understand that too in this series. We want to have a thorough, also secular case against homosexuality for the conversations that you have with non-Christians. We're going to quote things from medicine, psychology, statistics, and things like that, that all support the idea of what the scripture teaches about this issue. It's not just another relationship. It is different. It is actually different. And I'm, I'm saying it's verifiably, provably different. And to argue against the science of it is because there's just a preconceived notion that you're, you're holding on to. And so hopefully we can come open-minded. Um, we also want to answer the pro-gay slogans that aren't so much about intellectual issues, but they're more emotionally based. And it's kind of like the pro-choice slogans that we get in our era. Well, there are slogans like love is love, love wins. You guys have heard that. Uh, two people should be able to do what they want in their own bedroom, right? including, you know, homosexual behavior. That's a slogan that we hear as well. Um, as long as there's two consenting adults, I don't see why anybody should, uh, should have anything to say about it. Um, you can't legislate morality. We quotes like that. Equal marriage rights. That's a quote. That's actually a misconception. And things like this. Your bigotry is why so many gay people commit suicide. That's another one of the things that we deal with. And we're going to tackle all those issues kind of one at a time. But of course, that's in the coming weeks. <clears throat> we're going to also look at the legal case against same-sex marriage. We're going to look at how to deal with the anger of pro-gay friends and family and how to truly love gay friends and family in a Christ-like way. Uh, we'll be covering uh, some different issues like same-sex attraction. That's a desire. And some of you here may be experiencing that. You're welcome. You're not less of a person or less of a Christian because you're experiencing that. That's fine. Same-sex attraction. We'll deal with same-sex behavior, which is different. There's temptation and then there's actions and sin. So attraction and behavior, two different issues in the Bible. Same-sex marriage, a third issue. And then we'll eventually get over to talk briefly about gender identity. So that'll also be in there as well. And um, we're going to start, though, with the biblical view. Because I'll be honest, if the Bible supports something, so should Christians. And the current pro-gay theology says, the Bible supports homosexuality, you ought to as well. And my honest response is, show me and I'll change. And I'll get fired. <laughs> but I'll, but, I'll, but I, I will go with the word of God over man any day. Any day. That's okay. I, I, don't, I, I feel strongly convicted that to do anything else would be utterly foolish. And so we will, we will look at the scripture and we'll listen carefully to the pro-gay theology and I'm going to show you how I believe it really fails. In fact, it falls so hard on its face that it, that it comes off as being um, uh, actually deceptive about what the Bible says. And so we'll look at the details. So uh, before I, I tell you that they're, they're wrong, the pro-gay theologians are wrong, 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 I think we have to give them a careful listen to. We've got to actually understand what they're saying. Uh, my favorite thing to do in witnessing is ask questions. And so the first thing I did was I said, okay, 
where's this information coming from? And there's a gentleman called Matthew Vines. Some of you have heard of him. This guy came out. He, he was a Harvard student. Took two, he was 19, took two years off his uh, college and studied the issue of homosexuality and the Bible and Christianity. Came back at the end of two years, and then he came out with a video, and he spoke in churches, and he started doing these Reformation conferences, and he started to try a, a new pro-gay movement where he says, I believe the Bible supports homosexual marriage, loving monogamous homosexual relationships. So what we're going to do is we're going to use him as the case in point, since he seems to be one of the spearheads of the modern pro-gay movement. And um, we're going to listen carefully to what he says, but I'm also going to offer refutations of it that I think are valid. In other words, I'm going to tell you where I think he's wrong and answer some of the stuff that he says that probably goes right over your head because you didn't happen to live in ancient Rome or study Koine Greek. <laughs> so we'll look at those issues as well. Um, after a fair hearing, then I think it's going to be really clear that you cannot in a rational way, say the Bible supports any kind of homosexual behavior of any kind. So here we go. Um, first off, I want you to know that as we listen to what he says, as I read some of the quotes and stuff, it is not the offensive slogans of the past. Some of us remember hearing things like, well, David and Jonathan were gay. Jesus and John, the, and John, the apostle were gay. I've, yes, I've heard that. And the, these, these are because Jesus, uh, calls or John rather calls himself the one whom Jesus loved, the disciple he loved. And these are like radically offensive. It's certainly, there's no reason to think that this is the case. And actually at the, at Matthew Vines, to give him credit at their conference, they're like, Hey guys, don't say stuff like that. That's, that's horrible. How, you know, don't, don't say stuff like that. That's just offensive. You're just going to drive people away. Actually, their views are more nuanced and a little bit more sophisticated. I should say a lot more sophisticated. So as we get into this, you'll be like, huh? And then we'll try to explain it and I'll try to make it clear and, and hopefully not bring you any deeper into the path of, of having to learn more than you need to learn, to be honest, because I want to make it as simple as possible. And, um, and I know <laughs> some of you are like, good, don't, don't teach me anything. I don't need to know just this important stuff. So here is a quote from him on, um, on how he, he views things. And uh, notice he's coming from a place of saying, I'm a biblical Christian. I believe the Bible is authoritative. And, and that's why I think I'm going to convince you why the Bible says homosexuality is okay. Here's a quote from Matthew Vines. He says, the first problem is this. In Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns against false teachers and he offers a principle that can be used to test good teaching from bad teaching. By their fruit, you will recognize them, he says. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Good teachings, according to Jesus, have good consequences. That doesn't mean that following Christian teaching will or should be easy. In fact, many of Jesus' commands are not easy at all. Again, I'm, I'm quoting Matthew Vines here. Turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, laying down your life for your friends, but those are all profound acts of love that both reflect God's love for us and that powerfully affirm the dignity and worth of human life and of human beings. And so far, we're all on the same page here, right? He says, good teachings, even when they're very difficult, are not destructive to human dignity. They don't lead to emotional and spiritual devastation and to the loss of self-esteem and self-worth. But those who have been the... Um, but those have been the consequences for gay people of the traditional teaching on homosexuality. It has not borne good fruit in their lives, and it has caused them incalculable pain and suffering. If we're taking Jesus seriously that bad fruit cannot come from a good tree, then that should cause us to question whether that tradition, the, the traditional teaching is correct. 
So what he's saying here, Matthew Vines is saying that as a foundational view, and some of you are like upset after hearing this, right? But it's because you realize the implications of it. And that's my, my feel too. I've had time to process this and calmly think about it. Well, to Matthew Vines and, and, and those of his ilk, the idea is that bad fruit hurts human dignity or self-esteem. And that's where he got weird. What does the Bible actually say about human dignity and self-esteem? They're profoundly evil. Pride is at the root of all kinds of wickedness. In fact, Proverbs goes into great detail to say things like, hey, here's, in fact, here's a list of like seven things that, that make it where you don't want to be a fool. It's like, it's better to be this than a fool and better to be that than a fool and a fool this and a fool that and a fool that. And then it finally says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? A man with pride? It's better to be a fool than to be that guy. So it delivers like half a chapter just to make the point, just to finally bring home the hammer of like, hey, don't you don't want pride and your your sense of self-worth and self-like importance, I should say. And so this is actually wrong. Um, biblically, being brought low is a good thing. Think of Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Based on the Matthew Vine's view of good fruit, you'd think the Pharisee was the one that had been, had good fruit because he was like, I thank you that I am, I am this wonderful person. And the tax collector beat his chest and said, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so actually this is incorrect. Um, and, th and that's actually what happens. You see with, with the views that you'll hear, there's, there's, a, there's a foundational error that's centered on humanity that then focuses on uh, changing the Bible to sort of come in line with this view. And you'll, you'll get more as we go. Um, another one of his false ideas uh, is going to be that being alone is a great evil. Being alone is a great evil. Let me let me read this to you. This is his interpretation of Genesis 2.18, speaking of man and wife and, husband, and, and male and female. In Genesis 2.18, Matthew Vines here, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And yes, the suitable, the suitable helper or partner that God makes for Adam is Eve, a woman. And a woman is a suitable partner for the vast majority of men for straight men. But for gay men, this isn't the case. For them, a woman is not a suitable partner. And in all of the ways that a woman is suitable, a suitable partner for straight men, for gay men, it's another gay man who is a suitable partner. And the same is true for lesbian women. For them, it's another lesbian woman who is a suitable partner. But the necessary consequence of the traditional teaching on homosexuality is that even though gay people have suitable partners, they must reject them. And they must live alone for their whole lives without a spouse or a family of their own. We are now declaring good the very first thing in Scripture that God declared not good. For the man to be forced to be alone. And the fruit that this teaching has borne has been deeply wounding and destructive. This is a major problem. By holding to the traditional interpretation, we are now contradicting the Bible's own teachings. The Bible teaches that it is not good for the man to be forced to be alone. And yet now we are teaching that it is. This idea that um, being alone is a great evil is, is at the core of the theology before he gets into interpreting passages. Th this is really the core of it, that you're forcing a man to be alone and that that is an evil, evil thing. Um, of course, the aloneness that Adam had was very different than the aloneness that Matthew Vines is actually talking about. How is Adam alone? He was the only human on earth. Like that doesn't even last through the first season of a TV show. <laughs> It's not good. <laughs> it wasn't 
it's not good specifically for a man to be um, single. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 speaks that this it's actually better um, for you to stay single and serve the Lord. It's actually a hard teaching. Married people don't like it. But And I'm married, and I, but I don't mind it. I'm like, God, teach what you want. <laughs> Um, but it's actually better to be single. You can do more for the kingdom of God. It actually promotes singleness. Jesus suggested it as a, as a good alternative to marriage, as a positive thing. So not married is not actually what this is talking about. Rather, he's completely alone. He's, it's not good for man to be completely alone. And there's many single people who live fulfilled lives. They're not like... So he has the word forced. It is, they should not be forced to be alone. But that is, of course, adding to the passage. That's not what it's talking about. Um, Adam wasn't being forced to be alone. He was just alone. It was the only guy around. And that is, of course, very lame. <laughs> I would not want to be in that situation. If I had to go to a desert island and I could only take one thing, it would be somebody else. <laughs> Sorry to my wife. <laughs> it should probably be her. But, but yeah, we do not want to do that. Um, so that's actually really, it's just inaccurate. It's just inaccurate. Now, is it true, as I quote him again, is this true? In all of the ways a woman is a suitable partner for straight men, for gay men, it's another gay man who's a suitable partner. Is that just a factually true statement? Because if it is, then it's something we should consider. Well, he actually ignores the meaning of the words in Genesis chapter 2. God says he'll give a suitable partner. Well, that that word, the words are Ezer and uh, Konegdao, which is... Uh, these are, I'm getting, doing Hebrew now, so forgive me, Randy, as he falls asleep. Does, <laughs> it doesn't just mean suitable partner. Um, the word is helper, ezer, but then the word for suitable, that connectao, it means that which is opposite yet corresponds to. So, for instance, the suitable partner, connectao, for a round peg would be a round hole. The suitable partner here is an opposite which corresponds to there's actually is a very it's a rather interesting word but it's chosen specifically because of the nature of what god's about to do man and woman are suitable because they have complementary genetics they and i'm not going to get inappropriate or or, or vulgar uh, i want to be very careful as i tread just like scripture does on the issues of the marriage bed in a very careful and i like to use euphemisms just like the bible does here but they're complementary genetics they fit together wonderfully they're literally designed to be together, the, physically so. Um, they're able to produce children. They represent Christ and the church, according to Ephesians, and they're able to fulfill these special roles of love and submit inside the marriage. And this is the suitable helper that's an opposite that corresponds to. None of those things can be said to be true about a, a male-male relationship or a female-female relationship. They're, they don't have complementary genetics. They don't fit together physically. They cannot ever produce children. Um, it's, it's not possible any more than like a, a, a man and a tree could produce children. It's just completely impossible. Um, they don't represent Christ in the church, according to the scripture. That's specifically male-female roles. And um, they don't are not able to f fulfill love and submit roles. You're, you're missing a role in the church, and you could say they're missing a role in parenting as well. So this is th this is simply not the case that a gay man is a suitable partner in every way that a woman is a suitable partner for a man. It's just not true. They're not suitable. Gay actions in the bedroom aren't really the same as the sacred union of man and woman. The actual physical acts that take place are violent to the body. They're harmful. Two men cannot do what a man and woman can do. And two women can't do it either. It's just not physically possible. So it's not, it's not the same thing. They're not apples and apples. 
Not only does that ignore the words, his commentary on it, but he ignores the obvious differences between man and woman. It ignores the fact that Adam and Eve are seen in the Bible as representative of all who come from them. Adam is our chief. That's why him eating of the fruit and Eve eating of the fruit then affects all of us later on, because they are seen as the prototypes for every single human to ever come after them. Adam's the quintessential man, represents all of men. He has a woman who is his helper, and the titles of marriage are given next, and they're very gender-specific. Man and wife. They're gender-specific. Marriage is a gender-specific issue in the scripture from the first time it comes up. There is no acknowledging in the Bible of a third kind of person. There's men and women. There's, there's never a third individual mentioned who has, a same, who has same-sex desires who rightly belongs to the same-sex partner. And God had many pages in which to insert this idea in the scriptures, in which case I would say, okay, Lord, you are more wise than I. I accept whatever you say because I believe the Bible. Now, the next thing, what he does after kind of setting up the concept that, uh, the, that, that this traditional view is bad fruit and it contradicts the Bible by saying that man should be alone, which we find it doesn't through inspection. Then he says there are six passages in the Bible, only six that deal with homosexuality and proceeds to go through each of the six passages pointing out how he thinks they don't apply or they don't say what you think they say. So I want to look at those six passages tonight, if we have time to get through them all. And what we'll do is we'll show um, the, 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 the gay th- reformed gay theology view of those six passages, and then we'll show the, um, I think, an accurate view of those six passages. So that you'll be fully armed with whatever things are going to come your way. And perhaps you have heard these things and you've swallowed this, and you're like, no, I'm fully convinced that this, this stuff's okay. And you think the church has just been wrong for 2,000 years about this, and we're just they're just have been confused. This will hopefully clear that up. And I I hope to appeal to people on both sides of the fence on this one. So here on the quote, Matthew Vines again, he says, what are these six verses? There are three in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament. So I'll go in order of their appearance in scripture. In the Old Testament, we have the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, as well as two prohibitions in Leviticus 18 and chapter 20. And in the New Testament, we have a passage by Paul in Romans 1, as well as two Greek terms in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. So I will go over these one at a time. You'll have time to write them down again later. Let's start with the first one, the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18 and 19, we actually have the passage about Sodom and Gomorrah. And in 18 is sort of the preparation for what happens in chapter 19. And the main points, well, let me just do a quick review of what happens, right? Abraham is there. He meets the three representatives of God. One of them is God in the flesh, probably a Christophany. And they speak together and these beautiful, really cool stuff happens. I wish I could spend all night talking about that. And then two of them go off into Sodom and they're like, hey, we're going to see if the, if the city is as wicked as, uh, as, as, as we have heard. And we're going to go and inspect it, you know, do a, do a, 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 a summary judgment on this city. They go down to the city and they're going to find, if they find 10 righteous men, then they won't be destroyed, but they find one. His name's Lot. They stay with Lot and then the men of the city gather around and they say, bring out the people that have come to you. We want to know them carnally, which is obvious what the meaning there is. So men see these men, they're angels, but they're in the guise of men. And they say, we want to know them carnally, bring them out here. And this is a, uh, pardon the term, this is, this is a horrific term, but it, it's a it's a gang rape. That's the idea that's happening here. And it's male to male. And so the main point of the uh, theology here from the 
viewpoint of the uh, pro-gay theology is this. This is an issue of same-sex gang rape and not homosexual monogamous love. Therefore, this passage doesn't apply. So it's just, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to the issue. The term sodomy that's used later on is wrongly applied to Sodom. Because for many years, people would use the term sodomy to refer, refer to same-sex male-to-male relations. And uh, they'd say, well, that's wrongly applied to Sodom because Sodom's sin wasn't that. Then he says, there's other Bible passages that talk about Sodom, and they identify Sodom's sin as things other than homosexuality. Primarily, the pro-gay theology will say the sin of Sodom was inhospitality. They were not hospitable towards others. Um, I've heard this a few different times, actually, before even having studied uh, this particular uh, pro-gay theology. And it strikes you as a little bit odd. It's like, wow, does God really feel that strongly about inhospitality? Um, well, let's, let's respond to this stuff. What really was the sin of Sodom? Now, first off, I want to mention this. Genesis 18:19. this is not a key passage in dealing with the issue of homosexuality. This is, in fact, the probably least important passage of the entire Bible on this issue. So I don't want to spend too long on it uh, because of that, because we have much more clear stuff going on. But let me show you how even this passage, when you really look at it, it's inarguably directly opposed to homosexual behavior of any kind. So this um, example of the men of the city coming against the angels who appeared as humans, um, that's, that's the example of the wickedness of Sodom. Certainly this is a wicked thing. Sodom's sin is listed in many places in the Bible, and there's actually different names and, and titles given for the different sins that they were doing. It turns out they had a lot of sin. No one's really surprised about this. The, the, I'll give you some of the names of the sins. Pride, injustice, not helping the poor and the fatherless, being proud of their sin, so treating sin as if though it was a good thing. That's pride about sin is treating my sin like it's good. And committing abomination. That's just a catch-all. What did Sodom do? A whole bunch of nasty, wrong stuff. That's what Sodom did. That's why the list is different in different places, because it just did all kinds of wicked stuff. But one sin of Sodom stands out amongst the rest as, and is condemned in the New Testament. And in Jude, which is a one-chapter book in the Bible, so Jude 7, verse 7, it says this about Sodom and Gomorrah. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. They had given themselves over to what? Sexual immorality and had gone after strange flesh. This is Jude 7. This verse seems to say that it wasn't just the act of rape, but it was the nature of the attraction that was bad. It was both. It wasn't that they were abusive to people. It was the nature of the attraction, strange flesh, the wrong kind of desires, desiring the wrong kind of person is the idea. The term there is a heterosarkos, but it basically means in the Greek, what it basically means is something other than what is right. It's, it's, it's the wrong kind of thing. It's kind of like when you're, when you're um, a little kid, and you get, you know, you're in the mall or you're shopping with your family or you're in a big group of people and you know dad's got the blue jacket. Dad's wearing the blue jacket. And you get lost in the crowd or you're wandering around for a while and then pretty soon you look up at the guy with the blue jacket who you're, whose hand you're holding or who you're following around and you're like, ah, you know, stranger danger. That's not the right guy. This is, oh, wrong flesh, wrong person, wrong kind of thing. Ooh, this is not good. That's what the strange flesh is referring to. But in this context in particular, it's, it's got to mean you are trying to 
have sexual relations with a category that is wrong. That's what that means. So Jude 7, you can actually look at this verse carefully and you'll see it clearly condemns homosexual behavior specifically and calls it the example of, of what uh, Sodom did, which is why the term sodomy ended up eventually taking on that meaning. Now you might say, maybe they were going after the angels. Maybe the strange flesh is men and angels because in fact, you know, the Nephilim and all this sort of issues, if you're familiar with that sort of teaching, except in Jude 7, it doesn't just say it was this one instance that Sodom was doing. In fact, let me read it again. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities around them are all accused of going after strange flesh. And that this is a sexually immoral behavior. So the example, I don't think that all the cities around them were sleeping with angels. No, no. The example is that they were men who were going after men. That's the scriptural standpoint on it. In fact, they even asked for the man. Give us the man. They thought it was a male, a human male. So um, certainly this could only be homosexual activity. So it's true that this doesn't specifically address homosexual consenting relations. That this is not saying, hey, but maybe, you know, when, when they're, it doesn't specifically say, even if they love each other and they're, and they're committed and all this sort of thing, but it doesn't endorse it either. It just, it's a blanket accusation that seems to say this is bad in every way. It's the nature of the attraction that is just inappropriate. That's the, that's the statement here in Jude 7, the commentary of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit. As I said, this is for Christians. If you don't believe the Bible, and at this point you're rolling your eyes, why do you care? <laughs> But for those of us that believe the Bible, we take the whole counsel of God's word, including God's commentary on things that God did. And that's what Jude 7 presents. This is clearly a, a condemnation of that behavior. Yes, this is not about um, desires. It's about design. Strange flesh. It's the wrong kind of flesh that you're going after. Now, in Leviticus 18 and 20, we get the second two passages in, of the six in the Old Testament. And I'll read them to you, Leviticus 18.22, and then in Leviticus 20, verse 13. Now, in Leviticus 18, we get the condemnation of a behavior. In Leviticus 20, we get a, a repetition of the condemnation and the consequence. Leviticus 18 has a list of things that you shouldn't do as a Jew, and then Leviticus 20 has the consequences with them. So it's got the, uh, the penal side as well as the, the coat on that part. And uh, Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. What exactly is the sin here? The sin here is not rape. The sin is not pedophilia. It would not have said a man with a male. It would have said a man with a child. Um, it is it is not specifically rape. In fact, rape is forbidden in other places in the Old Testament. And so this would just be a, a redundant and non-specific issue here. The actual sin that's, that's happening here is a man doing with a man what is right to do with a woman. And what is the appropriate thing for a man and woman to do? Get married. That's the appropriate thing. It's not appropriate for them to just fornicate outside of marriage. Marriage is appropriate. All other sexual activities forbidden in the scriptures. And again, if you're not a believer, that's fine. But this is where believers stand and this is why. 
Marriage is forbidden. Actually, marriage is outside of marriage. All activities forbidden. That's sexual. That's passionate. That is that is of this nature. So if man tries to do with man what he does with woman, that is sin. That's what it's saying here. Man lies with man as with a woman. It's an abomination. So this is definitely a sin. But now we get into the response uh, from Matthew Vines. He doesn't suggest, and most, very few people will say, I don't know anybody that says, this isn't really a sin. It doesn't mean that. It's so kind of plain and clear. They don't argue that. Here's the response, Matthew Vines. Christians have always regarded the book of Leviticus, in particular, as being inapplicable to them in light of Christ's fulfillment of the law. So while it is true that Leviticus prohibits male same-sex relations, it also prohibits a vast array of other behaviors, activities, and foods that Christians have never regarded as being prohibited for them. For example, chapter 11 of Leviticus forbids the eating of pork, shrimp, and lobster. That would be a bummer, right? Which the church does not consider to be a sin. Thankfully, I had seafood uh, pasta for lunch today, so I'd be in trouble. Chapter 19 forbids planting two kinds of seed in the same field, wearing clothing woven of two types of material and cutting the hair at the sides of one's head. And here he brings his, uh, his application. Christians have never regarded any of these things to be sinful behaviors because Christ's death on the cross liberated Christians from what Paul called the yoke of slavery or yoke of bondage you might be familiar with. We are not subject to the old law. We are not subject to the old law, he says. Um, so his claim and the claim of these theologians and these, and the pro gay movement would be, this is not applicable to Christians. And my response would simply be, that's just not true. That's simply not true. I actually just taught a two week series and you'll be able to see it on YouTube. If you wait a little bit so I can get those videos uploaded on how we apply the old Testament law into this. And so I did an extensive, you know, survey of the scriptures on this topic, but let me just give you a little bit of information in survey. Though we are not under the law as the Israelites were, we are to learn truth from the law and apply it into our lives today. We are supposed to see it through Christ's work, but not dismiss it entirely and chuck the Old Testament or chuck the law as though it doesn't apply to us. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all scripture, including Leviticus, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. I I can get this from all scripture, including Leviticus. I can get doctrine from Leviticus. I can get reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness from this book. So we don't just casually cast off the law. That's my first point. You don't just casually throw it off. For instance, um, in the New Testament, we're told specifically about foods that all foods are clean. In Acts chapter 10 through, through Acts chapter 11, a huge discussion about that topic. In Romans 14 verse 14. We're also told that holy days are totally optional and you can either celebrate them or not. Let no one judge you according to holy days and Sabbaths. That is Romans 14 verses 5 and 6. We're specifically told in Hebrews 7 through 10 that the sacrifices have ended and so we should not be engaging in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, nor would it be possible without a temple. But there is a constant reaffirmation in the New Testament of moral truths of the Old Testament and principles that we learn from the Old Testament law. Jesus quoted Leviticus more than any other verse when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And he just directly applied it into our lives. We don't just dismiss it. Oh, you don't have to love anybody because that was in Leviticus. Peter and Paul also quote Leviticus. Peter, he makes a big case for Christian holiness. And then he quotes Leviticus and says, yeah, because be holy for I am holy. That's from Leviticus. And his application is really simple. Be holy because God is holy. 
It's just a direct application of this passage. The same verse is quoted 10 times in the New Testament. We should look at the Old Testament, apply it to the Jews first. And so let's do that, right? How would I apply Leviticus 18 and and Leviticus 20 to the Jewish nation of Israel? Homosexual acts are forbidden and penalized by death, regardless of considerations about love, marriage, or anything else. That's how I would apply it. Just directly apply it. Now, when you then look at the, at the Christian life, you're asking yourself, look, is this a ceremonial thing about like, say, clean and unclean? Is this a moral issue that's simply a moral truth? And for that, we sort of scope back and look at the rest of the chapter and, and look at the context and look at what the New Testament says also. And it becomes very clear what we should do with this passage. Let me actually take you, if you'd like, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 11. And this is Paul telling us how we should view the Old Testament law. It's actually his commentary on how to interpret the Old Testament and use the Old Testament law. He says in verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is anything that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. He gives a list of things modern day that the law that still apply from the law, and they're all moral considerations, aren't they? We still apply the moral truths and the overarching permanent morality that we see revealed in the law. It kind of brings our compasses back to true north, so to speak. Specifically, that the law's moral standards, according to 1 Timothy 8, are, should be used to bring sinners to a place of repentance. That's what the law is for. It's for the moral concepts that we bring still. So now, even if sodom, sodomy was not mentioned there, that's the translation I have, New King James Version. Uh, many of the modern translations say homosexuality because the word didn't exist back a long time ago. So they would use sodomy or another effeminate other words. Um, now, that, now they would probably say homosexuality. We'll get to that later because he says this is translated wrong. And we'll, we'll approach that when it comes. But even if that wasn't there, what we can say is that in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, we have a case saying, hey, Paul's like, hey, in the Old Testament, the laws about sexuality should be used to tell sinners, here, what you're doing is wrong. That's what he's saying. So um, we have fornication. We, we have that specifically mentioned which is a catch-all statement for sexual sin. Many Old Testament moral laws are reissued in the New Testament from the Old Testament revelation, like honor parents, don't steal, don't murder, especially things related to heterosexual marriage being the only sanctified bedroom relationship. Those things tend to be repeated in the New Testament constantly. So we have a case for saying, hey, regarding this, this is an overall moral truth. So there is, um, there's that. But now let's look at Leviticus 18 in context and get a view of what is actually being said here. Is is the prohibition from male to male behavior, is that the same as him saying, don't eat lobsters, the cockroach of the sea, you know? Leviticus 18 is a section of the Old Testament all to itself. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. It is its own section, so it can be taken as a chunk. And it is called the Holiness Code. And it is, um, it begins with a statement where God says, don't be like the nations before. And then it ends with God saying the same thing. And, um, actually I'll quote that again later, but 
Let me just give you the order of the sins that are mentioned in Leviticus 18. First, he says not to be with your wife during her uh, period. Then he says not to be with a neighbor's wife. Then forbids incest. Then forbids incest with a younger family member in particular. Then forbids sacrificing children in the fire to a false god named Molech. Then forbids men being with men. And then forbids men being with animals. So you see how there's sort of a, a common theme here. And uh, it may have been that this Molech thing had a, a, a sexual connotation to it, and that's why it fell into this passage. But certainly all these things have one thing in common. The nations around them, the nations that were in Canaan before the Israelites came in, they were doing those things. So God specifically says, don't follow their example. But now let me read you what Matthew Vine says about this. He says, but just three verses away from the prohibition of male same-sex relations in 18 verse 19, sexual relations during a woman's menstrual period are also prohibited, and this too is called an abomination at the chapter's close. But this is not regarded as sinful behavior by Christians. Rather, it is seen as a limited matter of ceremonial cleanliness for the ancient Israelites. So I want to respond to that. And, and I, I know some of you are like, this is kind of complicated, Mike. Unfortunately, because the plain teaching of the scripture, the plain text just seems to forbid homosexuality, there's going to be arguments and discussions about the nuanced details. And this is just what, this is the, what the issue is. What I'd like to do is try to equip you to be able to have those discussions intelligently and hopefully lovingly and uh, help people because if it's a sin, we want to keep them from it. Right? I think so. <laughs> I think so. We should be preachers of righteousness just like Noah was. So the first response is this. We don't make rules based on exceptions. This is just a general rule of life, right? You don't make rules based on exceptions. And what he's saying is there's one of these things listed in Leviticus 18 that obviously, or at least most Christians think, doesn't apply to them. And therefore, this doesn't either. Yet everything else on the list seems to apply. Sacrificing your children in the fire. Anybody think that that, that rule has passed? No, some of you might, you know, sometimes think about it, fantasize. No, That's a, I mean, it's a horrific and evil and twisted thing. And of course it, you know, incest, still wrong. Adultery, still wrong. Taking a younger family member, still wrong. All these things are still wrong. In fact, the only thing on the list that is debatable is the issue of whether or not a, a married couple can be together during the women's menstruation period. That's the only one that's debatable. So the others are all clearly wrong. So we shouldn't th immediately throw out when it's couched in, a, in the context, the overall context is all these things are wrong. It's also the lowest rung on the ladder. As you go down Leviticus 18, things get worse and worse and worse. And it's down there at the bottom, right next to bestiality. So this is, it's not couched up here at the top with a ceremonial thing. It's couched on the bottom in the context of these other things. That's why he has to go three verses away to find the other passage. Yeah, it's also clearly this. Um, the specific issue of menstruation, sleeping with a woman during her menstruation because her blood is involved. And blood is very much an issue in the ceremonial area of the Old Testament law. It caused a ceremonial uncleanness. This was not viewed as a moral uncleanness. It was not as though the woman sinned when she was during her, her period. But this was simply a ceremonial uncleanness. And I, forgive me for this sensitive topic, but that is the topic of the, of the series. I don't particularly like this and neither do you. But yet here we are. This is clearly ceremonial, and, and the way we see this is when a woman was in her menstruation, she was considered unclean for seven days, but there was no sacrifice. 
Unlike if you do this, now you have to sacrifice to become right with God again. There was no sacrifice. She wasn't wrong with God. It was just that this was a sanitary issue as well as just, you know, God's laws about cleanliness. And we're told in the New Testament that we're free specifically from the laws of cleanliness. In fact, even in Leviticus 18 about demonstration, it says when he approaches a woman during her customary uncleanness. It's a, it's a, it's a cleanness issue. It's not a moral thing. So that actually is the exception. The rest of them seem to all be moral rules that exist today as well. And the majority of them certainly overweigh the one exception. If he thinks the one exception is interesting and important, then certainly the other list matters even more. Um, well, let me read what else he says. Matthew Vine says this. Well, Leviticus calls it an abomination. And he's, he's very focused on this issue of abomination, abomination. As though we're saying because the word abomination is here, therefore it's wrong. But actually we're more sophisticated than that as well. Um, Leviticus calls it an abomination. If it was an abomination, then, then it certainly can't be a good thing now. The term abomination is applied to a very broad range of things in the Old Testament law. Eating shellfish in Leviticus 11. Eating rabbit or pork in Deuteronomy 14. These are called abominations. As I just said, sex during a woman's menstrual period is also called an abomination. The term abomination is primarily used in the Old Testament to distinguish practices that are common to foreign nations from those that are distinctly Israelite. This is why in Genesis 43:32 it says that for the Egyptians to eat with the Hebrews would be an abomination to the Egyptians. And why Exodus 8:26 says that for Israelites to make sacrifices near Pharaoh's palace would be an abomination to the Egyptians. There's nothing wrong with the Israelite sacrifices, of course. Of course, neither does the Bible say there's anything wrong. I just have to point out it's an abomination to the Egyptians who are seen as having a bad moral system. So that uh, seems to be irrelevant. But the problem with both of these things is that they would blur the lines between practices that are specific is specifically Israelite and those that are foreign. The term... Uh, the nature of the term abomination in the Old Testament is intentionally culturally specific. It defines religious and cultural boundaries between Israel and other nations. But it is not a statement about what is intrinsically good or bad, right or wrong, and that's why numerous things that it's applied to in the Old Testament have long been accepted parts of the Christian life and practice. So in, from his perspective, you'd think the very existence of the word abomination means that it's automatically now acceptable because it was only a cultural issue. Of course, we have to note that other things are also called an abomination here, like sacrificing your children in the fire. And we would most likely say that's probably still wrong. Um, now, I want to respond to this. The word abomination is a term that, according to him, defines religious and cultural boundaries between Israel and other nations. But it's not a statement about what's intrinsically good or bad. The word abomination occurs in the English a lot. But this particular Hebrew word, abomination, uh, toubat, only occurs in Leviticus six times. And in fact... His, um, his example, Leviticus 11, calls, um, calls the, you know, eating rabbit or pork an abomination. Same word. It's actually a different word in the, in the Hebrew. It's the same word in, in my English translation, which is fine. It's a good translation. But it's a different word in the Hebrew. In Leviticus, it is only used six times. And every single time that the word is used in this particular book, it is about the actions in Leviticus 18 specifically. Incest, child sacrifice, sexual sins. The only one time that it is used not in a category, abominations, but it's used as a singular, is specifically male-to-male, same-sex relations. It says, it is, it, singular, it is an abomination. Then it summarizes an overall view of everything in Leviticus 18 as abominations. My point here is, um, he's either misinformed or deliberately misinforming. Leviticus 11 doesn't say what he says it says. 
and a careful look at the Hebrew, which most people are not capable of doing, would reveal this. And so unfortunately, this is a tactic where someone just talks over your head so that you think that they're right. If anything, this says it's not the same as shellfish. <laughs> there are numerous other things that, that abominations apply to in the Bible, but those things are accepted. And we'd say, yes, that's true, but not in Leviticus, in the book we're actually in, and not in Leviticus 11, uh, excuse me, chapter 18, where child sacrifice, incest, and adultery, these things are all called abominations, and every one but one of them is clearly a, a sin even today. So another response um, would be this. Uh, this is beside the point. <laughs> it's not based on the word abomination. It's the whole context of the whole passage. And if we, you know, it's, it's, this is a red herring. It's when hunters are looking for prey and someone grabs a dead red herring, a dead fish, and drags it through the, the, the odor trail. So the dogs smell the fish and go like, and, and head off after the red herring to no avail while their actual prey gets away. That's a red herring. This is a red herring. Who cares? This isn't based on the word abomination. This is based on the context of the passage itself. So um, this is definitely beside the point. The reason for the prohibition is given in more words than abomination. And if you would, turn to Leviticus 18 for me. And I would like to show you why this applies today. Now, I approach this saying, hey, this may or may not apply today. I'm okay either way, personally. I don't have a dog in the fight, so to speak. I just want to be faithful to the scriptures. But let's read it. Leviticus 18, verse 1. He says, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God, according to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you now, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. And then he gives the list. Don't do this, this, this. And I read the list earlier to you of all these sins. Then at the close of Leviticus 18, he repeats himself. Do not defile yourselves, in verse 24, excuse me, with any of these things, for by all these things the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger that dwells among you, for all these abominations." The men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. And he says, then again, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations who were before you. So specifically, God says in no uncertain terms, these acts are the reasons why I kicked them out of the land. Let me translate. I judge Gentiles by these standards. It's not just the Old Testament law. I judge Gentiles who have not the law by these standards, these sexual sins and these activities are so evil to me that I judge foreign nations by them. Israel, the reason why this will be in your law is because it is an untimed moral law. That's the context of Leviticus 18. And that's why the issue isn't about the word abomination. Now, this is where Matthew Vines begins to demonize the Old Testament law, a tactic commonly used by people who want to attack the traditional biblical values of Christians. And he, um, I think he's seeking desperately to try to um, pull away from this passage. And he says, okay, 
quoting him, but the penalty is death. Certainly that indicates that the behavior in question is particularly bad and that we should still regard it as sinful. But this overlooks the severity of all the other punishments in the old law. Given the threats posed to the Israelites by starvation, disease, internal discord, and attacks from other tribes, maintaining order and cohesiveness was of paramount importance for them. And so almost all of the punishments in the Old Testament will strike us as being quite harsh. A couple that has sex during the woman's menstrual period is to be permanently exiled from the community. I'm not sure that that's accurate, but if a priest's daughter falls into prostitution, she is to be burned at the stake. I like how they fall into prostitution. Does that happen to a lot of people? Fall into prostitution. <laughs> Oops. Um, yeah. People that are forced into it, that's called kidnapping, and the penalty of the kidnapper is he dies. But someone that voluntarily goes into it certainly can't be said to have fallen. Uh, she is to be burned at the stake, right? Anyone who uses the Lord's name in vain is not only to be reprimanded, but to be stoned. And anyone who disobeys their parents is to be stoned as well. And I'm just going to pick one of these to answer the demonizing, I think, of the Old Testament, because that's the impression it leaves, is, oh, shh, Christians don't even talk about the Old Testament because it is sick. That's the impression that, that I, the vibe I get from it. Um, he says, anyone who disobeys their parents is to be stoned. Well, Deuteronomy 21 Verse 18 through 21 speaks about this. And what it says actually is that when the child, yes, it says he who uh, dishonors their father and mother is to be stoned, but define dishonor. And so God does so. In Deuteronomy 18 or 21, verses 18 through 21, he declares that it's this, this child who uh, is a glutton. They're not a child, actually. They're, they're, they're old enough to be a glutton and a drunkard. <laughs> so it's probably not an eight-year-old kid here. <laughs> And they are repeatedly disobedient to their parents and they're a menace to society and they, and they don't listen to chastening and they won't be corrected. And so finally, they're taken out in their stone. This is not just like your kid disobeys you once and they're stoned. How do I know that? We'd all be dead. I mean, everybody, every Jew in the world would have been stoned by their parents and the first generation of Jews would have been the last generation of Jews. It's just, it's just, it's silly. In fact, why in the scripture then are there, are there uh, commendations that parents, like say, father, discipline your child? What do you mean discipline my child? When my child is disrespectful, I kill him. <laughs> there's no discipline. There's just death. That's why I've got four. The, the three can learn from the first one. <laughs> now, this is, this is clearly not the teaching of scripture that you just, as I quote him, anyone who disobeys their parents is to be stoned. That is not an accurate representation of the Old Testament law. It demonizes it in order to make you not want to pay attention to what it says. And people do this a lot. So uh, please think deeply about what people say about the Old Testament law. Don't just nod our heads when they're like, oh, yeah, the law was bad. No, no, the Bible says the law was good. It was good. It was good. It's still good. It may not apply to me directly. It applies to me secondarily. And sometimes it teaches moral truths that apply to me very directly. But I have to actually think to figure out the answer to those questions. Leviticus 18, though, is really clear, I think. So his point is just to say, uh, just because the penalty was death doesn't mean it's a moral issue Christians today should face. I would say, true. And that's not why we think we should face this moral issue. It's because God says, I judge these Gentile nations by this, and therefore it's a moral issue that goes beyond the law. The power behind... The argument here is the fact that some of what he says is true, but it doesn't warrant his conclusion. It's kind of like saying, humans need to drink water in order to live. The ocean is full of water. Therefore, humans need to drink the ocean to live. Well, there are truths in what I'm saying here, but it's not enough truth. And so um, it's just like 
that argument, it ignores the issue of salt water being unhealthy. Gay theology ignores many of the reasons these passages are so unanimous in their declarations that homosexual behavior is wrong. So that's the Old Testament. And I like to uh, get into the New Testament and deal with that. But I think what we're going to do is we're going to wait till next week to get into that. Um, the number one thing we want to do is get a solid biblical foundation. I think based simply on the Old Testament alone, we have a unanimous declaration based on Genesis establishing the pattern of man and woman, making man and wife the ultimate goal here as far as marriage goes, and the purpose of sexuality being expressions inside a husband and wife marriage, through um, the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah and its interpretation through Jude 7, and also this clear moral issue declared in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, and the context showing that this is bigger than just a ceremonial thing. That you've already got a unanimous declaration, but the New Testament is where the battle will really lie. And this is actually, I would, I would take someone to Romans 1. And for homework, I would study Romans 1, verses 26 and 27. That's where I would take you. I would take you to be ready for next week. But in the meantime, what I'd like to do is just open it up for questions uh, for a few minutes. So um, anybody have any questions? Yeah. Are you going to put these studies on a um, The study, actually, I'm going to put them on YouTube. And so you're free to watch them on YouTube. Um, I don't plan on putting anybody's faces and stuff in YouTube. It's just just this ugly mug. Uh, but you're free to you're free to do that, and and then it's a resource that sits there, and you can rewatch it or check it out later if you need to kind of refresh yourself on these issues. Yeah, Pastor Ken. You were using your notes. Can those be available? I will. I said earlier I will actually uh, at the end of the four weeks. Let me let me get them all finished, and then if anybody wants, send me your email or message me on Facebook, Mike Winger. Right, you can find me. Um, then I will uh, I'll send you the notes. But let me get them done first. He makes great notes. They're very thorough. <laughs> so, yes. Are we going to uh, talk about how to witness or how to talk to? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. First, we have to establish the truth of the scripture on it. But we will definitely get there um, on on recommendations on how to do it. And I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to do the best I can. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I've given a lot of thought and prayer to the issue. And I, I think that there's, I have some good direction for us to, to have. Yeah. Can you clarify abomination again? Abomination? Um, well, in terms of how, it's uniqueness in terms of how it was applied to describe Um Okay. Abomination specifically in Leviticus, in that book, is only used in regards to the context in Leviticus 18 and 20. It's used six times, mostly in Leviticus 18. It's used um, collectively to say that all of the things in Leviticus 18 that are forbidden are an abomination. That's whenever it has an S at the end of it. It's kind of like these abominations. But the only time it's used uh, singularly to talk to highlight something is the homosexual issue. Male, male sex, that's an abomination. And um, um, now I, I wouldn't say that makes it decisively wrong. I'm just saying that his defense is inaccurate and... And it's, it's, um, it's talking over people's heads and getting into Hebrew and things like that, that people just don't have the time and energy or ability sometimes to even get into. So my only point there is that's inaccurate. You, you can't rule it out because of that. In fact, if anything, this chapter of Leviticus and this particular issue are highlighted amongst the rest of the book. Now, I'm not saying it is the worst sin. Don't get me wrong. I think murder, I think preaching a false gospel Leading people to hell? Oh, that's a lot worse. Yeah. 
but it is but it is uh, highlighted. Sexual sin in general is highlighted. We'll get to that eventually. We'll talk about where is it in the category. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. So that's in the New Testament passages in First Timothy and First Corinthians, and we will get there next week. And I will get into details on that. And there is, we will deal with that exact issue of where, yeah, what do we do with those who simply say, oh no, that, that's not the word it is. It is not that word. It doesn't mean that. Um, we will definitely deal with that and hopefully it will, it will be very clear. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to do, and this, this, we have time next week, if I get that far, I'd like to do it, is I'd like to actually give a set of advice to brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with this issue. Um, the first thing I would tell them is you're not less of a Christian. You're no less of a Christian. I'm a, I'm a perverted sinner too. And it is perverted and it is sin. And so am I. And that's a sad admission. When we say amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you really mean it? I do. You don't know what my sins are? Tough. <laughs> Why would I tell you? <laughs> Why would I? Uh, I, yeah, <laughs> we've all done shameful things and we all have thought and desired to do shameful things. And this is just the same as that. It's just no different. It just goes right in the category with all or all other sorts of things that if you're tempted in this, call it temptation. Don't call it your lifestyle. Just call it temptation. And don't think of yourself as less of a Christian. Just know, hey, you need Jesus. And the good news is when we go to heaven, you're not going to be tempted anymore with anything. Tem temptation is temporary. Praise God. <laughs> I wouldn't last long in heaven if it wasn't for that, but yeah. The, the couple of times I've tried to use that, that argument that it's, it's a sin just like any other sin, Yeah. where I get lost and where my discussion gets lost is in the innateness of their identity. Yes. Okay. It, when, it, it's like me coming up to somebody who's been straight their whole life and suddenly telling them, you've been living a lie. Man, yeah. I don't know how to address that. Um, to address there's, there's two issues there, I think. So the question is like, how do I address someone who is deeply ingrained in a homosexual lifestyle? How do I, how do I approach them? And I'll we'll get into more questions there, but just first let's understand what that means. It kind of be like Paul going, how do I address someone who's deeply ingrained in, in an idolatrous lifestyle? You know, where it's, it really is. It's, it's like their, their, their career is based on idolatry. Alexander, the coppersmith, he makes idols. That's what he does. And he thinks they're great. And he comes and shows them to me. And he's like, and I'm like, oh, that's nice there, Alexander. You know, and, and I'm like, how do I approach someone who is deeply ingrained in a sinful lifestyle and behavior? That's basically like saying, how do I do evangelism? Um, you know, it's, 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 it's not different on this issue. It's just the same, but it's a separate issue. That's the first thing. The separate thing is what about someone who's like, I'm born that way. You don't understand. This is, this is not just my lifestyle. It's my identity. And, uh, we will deal with that when I get to the secular case against homosexuality, where we'll look at case studies 
I'm going to summarize these things for you guys, but case studies on uh, medical evidence, things like this. There is no evidence that anyone's born that way. And now, honestly, I don't care if they are born that way. That, then that's fine. Okay, you're born that way. That's, hey, maybe I was born, you know, with a proclivity towards adultery. Very possibly. I don't know. I don't know if it was a nature nurture or born that way. Maybe a combination of the three. It wouldn't change the nature of it being a sin or not. Um, it would just mean you need Jesus, man. You know, you need Jesus. And, um, and so that, that argument of I'm born this way, therefore I'm supposed to act this way. That doesn't follow because we're born in sin, the scripture says. But further, it's not scientifically true. It's not true. People don't, it, it appears that people aren't born that way. And a great, a, lot, a great deal of money and time and energy has been put into trying to prove people are born that way. And the only positive thing in the case of people being born that way is a Lady Gaga song. <laughs> but studies with twins and things like that, scientific genetic studies, there's no evidence. It seems to be more uh, in the mind and has to do often with the way someone was raised, um, alienation from, a, from one of the parents, that kind of thing. Yeah, Christiana. Um, one of the arguments that I've heard is that the church condemns um, interracial relationships, mm, yeah. and then now we're condemning homosexual relationships. Yeah. So, and I'm like, I don't remember the church condemning. I know that they used the church to yeah. condemn interracial relationships, mm. but I'm like, but I, the only argument that I can come up with, I guess, was, you know, they were, the only thing the Bible says about in a racial relationship, it was intercultural in the fact that we weren't, we're not supposed to yeah. hook up with someone who's not saved. Yeah, and Israelites were not supposed to, in, in this in the Old Testament, Israelites were not supposed to hook up with uh, other other nations, right? So that's the closest thing you have to interracial. Although, like you said, that's cultural because look at Ruth and Boaz. Ruth changed her culture, became Jewish, and then she marries Boaz, and it's lifted up as this beautiful, awesome thing. A couple generations later, you've got the king of Israel coming from that line. And so we don't have, it's not a racial issue, it's a cultural issue, it's a, it's a what gods do you worship issue. The New Testament carries us over, do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. Um, and so that's important. But, uh, but here's the thing is that there, racial differences aren't real differences, right? They're not. They're like, okay, your skin's darker. Like, give me a week. <laughs> I get dark. I could do that. Your skin's lighter. Lock me in a closet for a while. Yeah, like we could do that too. <laughs> these are these are sort of non-differences, but gender differences are genuine differences, and that's we'll get there as well. But that's the the short answer is gender differences are real differences. Racial differences are not, and the Bible did not support the racial issues. Uh, Moses' wife was an Ethiopian. Um, uh, yeah, Ruth and Boaz. We have the, the the this this going on here. We've we've got. Yeah, we've got we've got all all sorts of all sorts of good reasons to say that that the Bible never supported that. And if people in the church did, they were not supporting the Bible; they were going with the culture. So the church, what the church did, is like, well, who's exactly the church? Like, is the church the Catholic Church persecuting the the uh, Protestant Church, or is it the Protestant Church getting persecuted by the Catholic Church? And it's just it's just kind of confusing when you say that. So how do we go to the Bible and say what does the Bible teach? And that's kind of why we're starting there. So um, it's 6.30, and I like to end on time, which would be right now. 
I appreciate that because I know you appreciate that. <laughs> um, we will be doing this. It's, it's like I said, it's going to be a four-week series. I'm going to get as much info as I can into it. I'm, I'm belaboring the biblical stuff because that's our foundation. I'll move a lot quicker through other things. I, uh, I hope you have time. And if you don't, if you can't make it, you can get it up on YouTube. Um, I will put it up there as soon as I'm able to, assuming that we don't have a problem with recording or some glitch, in which case we're out of luck because <laughs> I have no backup plan. Um, but that being said, uh, let's pray. Um, I hope, man, I hope this, this is, this is, this has been so heavy on my heart. It was so heavy on my heart. And my prayer has been, Lord, let me be a light on this issue, um, and handle it in a, in a godly way, in a godly way. We need to love, if I can say this clearly, we need to love gay people the same way I should love a pedophile. I should love a, a mayor of the city. I should love someone who sometimes lies. I should love my neighbor who always parks in front of my house. I should love because God is love. And those who are born of God love. But if this is a, a sin that hurts people, separates them from God, and then there's people out there preaching to do it, they're preaching destruction into people's lives then. So the loving thing to do is to put myself, even if it means a bullseye's on me, to go, guys, because I love you, I gotta tell you this is wrong. Just like I gotta tell you, abortion is wrong. Just like I gotta tell you, smoking pot will mess you up. These things are wrong. Our culture is wrong. God is right. And if we're persecuted for that, may it not be because we misrepresented God's heart, but maybe because we represented God's heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and you may sanctify us by it, Lord, and we're grateful for that. We pray, Lord, that you would and that um, we would continue to grow in wisdom. And as we approach next week, the New Testament passages, and we get a clear, clear teaching on the Bible on this issue, dealing with the challenges that come from the new pro-gay theology. May we have wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom, Lord, by your spirit. And may you enable us to be lights, all of us, lights on this issue to the world. We don't need to be um, reformed in the sense of changed so much as we need to get back to the Bible on all of these issues, Lord, because our culture is wicked and sinful, and for too long the church has fallen asleep and has gotten quiet. So may we uh, may we speak up in Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your son.